Welcome to the Hydrogen Struggles Leadership Podcast, the premier provider of leadership consulting, culture shaping, and senior level executive search services. I'm Jamie Page, managing partner for Europe and Africa Industrial Practice. And every day, we're privileged to talk with fascinating people who are shaping the future through their leadership and vision. Now we're sharing our conversations with you in this brand new leadership podcast. Each episode, you'll hear a different perspective from thought leaders and innovators. Thanks for listening to the Hydrogen Struggles Leadership Podcast. In today's podcast, Powering the Future, I'm speaking with Cedric Nyker, member of the managing board at Siemens. Cedric is responsible for leading Siemens Asia and Australia regions and the Energy Management Division. Prior to Siemens, he spent 16 years at Cisco, where he was an integral part of the internet, mobile, and cloud revolution. Based in Silicon Valley, he built IoT systems to digitize companies and countries such as India. Cedric, you joined Siemens in April last year from a technology conglomerate at the forefront of innovation and technology in Silicon Valley to join what would be perceived as a very traditional European industrial conglomerate in Europe. What was your thinking behind that? You describe it a bit like my father does. Mm. My, my father basically told me, Cedric, um, when I was 18, there's three pillars of German society. There's the state, there's the church, and there's Siemens. My son, if you want to do something really stable and really uh, good, go to Siemens. And I actually joined Siemens before I was at uh, Cisco Siemens. But um, but there's a couple of things which, when when I thought, when I was approached and I thought about it, it said, well, wow, it's, it's a different Siemens than the one I knew and the, a different Siemens than I imagined because of three reasons. Um, the first one is, if you really think of which topics are important in the world at the moment, and, and, and you can look at globalization, urbanization, demographic change, climate change or digitalization, I mean, these things which are really changing the world at the moment, these are pieces where Siemens is very active, right? I mean, they build trains, uh, we build uh, renewable power sources. We actually address these key sort of mega changes in the world. So that's from a, a very abstract one is if, if you want to to have a big impact, it's a good place to start with. The second one is all of these elements where Siemens is very strong, is the biggest uh, European conglomerate, are actually in complete change. Digitalization is changing it. I mean, it's a pretty dramatic acceleration which is happening in terms of redefining what it actually means to do healthcare, what it actually means to do transport, what it yes. means to generate decarbonized energy. And, and Siemens has done a pretty good job. I mean, the, the first thing is, as well, it's good places they're in. And the second one, they're really trying to, and we are really trying to redefine ourselves. I mean, I don't know if you know, Siemens uh, spent more than $10 billion over the last couple of years to become the 10th biggest software player in the world. And it's, uh, and we're doing 5.2 billion of digital revenue. We have 24,500 software developers. We have the capabilities yeah. to bridge this existing world and this dramatic change going forward. When we've looked at industrial businesses in the past going through this digitization process, you find that there is almost a technical desire to do it, but sometimes there is a people piece to that that says, how do we engage those two things and make them gel? Well, the important part is, is when you're reinventing an organization, when you're going to the depths of somebody, I mean, Siemens exists, for, I call, we call it the oldest startup in the world. We're 170 years old, and it's really weird when you go forward. It's a great so concept. It's a great, it is a yeah. great concept. It's, you have to redefine and reinvent yourself constantly. To survive 170 years as a conglomerate, it means that you have, in each one of those industrial revolution, the capability and the willingness to, to do this. And so I'm, I'm describing in order to, do, to gel it, you need two things. You need an organization which has been reinventing itself over the last 170 years, 
But there's also a, a little piece is Siemens went through really tough times. I mean, if you look at the pieces I was in, we used to be in the telco sector, right? Siemens used to be in the telco sector and we lost the plot, yeah. right? I mean, Siemens, uh, the telco part was sold and, 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 and we lost it, which used to be the largest part of the Siemens conglomerate. So the combination of having an organization which knows how to reinvent itself and has really realized that if you're not embracing the new, you're going to be sort of put on the sideline. That's that's the, this combination of knowledge, but also a sort of healthy paranoia is actually what makes an organization tick and move in the right direction. But what's more important, Jamie, and that's where I want to go, it's the last piece is you need to define on why you're doing something. What is the impact? If you're aim as an organization is to say, I'm going to bring clean electricity to the billion of people which don't have it, or I'm going to take people off the streets and put them into, into trains, or I'm going to make healthcare more affordable. You really define a concept of, of a business to society, and, and, and it's great. And Siemens has been ranked by Forbes the number one most um, regarded company in the world, and it's something which is deep within the organization. So it's bringing a kind of an emotional content to your decision-making around the strategic planning of the business. It's connecting with the customer. That's um, very well put. I mean, the idea is, is that if your intents are good, if you're close to the customer and you're capable to connect this back to the organization and drive the organization in the right direction, it's exactly where you need to go. And touching on the theme of, of energy, um, there are tectonic changes taking place in the power industry. We know that Siemens has been involved in the blockchain energy trading project in Brooklyn. Could you just talk us through this importance and, and the project and just what that means for Siemens in the future? Yeah, I mean, it's the same thing. Is this, When you're really big, you, um, as Siemens, you need to still sort of um, have this DNA from the outside, which is changing. And, and, and uh, the blockchain activities is actually driven by, driven by a natural disaster. It's, I think, Hurricane Sandy, which took out Brooklyn. I mean, you just need to understand that half of Brooklyn was down. And a couple of people in the startup said, OK, we'll, we're going to define what they call Brooklyn microgrids in order to be really sort of uh, ready for the next hurricane or the next sort of disaster to hit. And they were thinking, okay, if I do this, do I do it the classical way or do I do it in a more advanced way? And they decided to say, okay, I'm going to build a microgrid, but I'm going to use blockchain technology to reinvent the concept of energy. And we're fascinated. And we said, okay, but there's somebody who's doing this, this sort of reinvention of what it means to trade energy. We want to be part of it. And you call it emotional aspect. You have to understand that you can use blockchain as a sort of a distributed ledger, but you could use it to understand nearly to the electron basis. Is this electron being produced by you, Jamie, on your rooftop with yeah. your PV, and I have an air conditioning, and you give it to me, and I can settle with a smart contract the capability that you have it, and I can make a conscious decision that I emotionally want to buy green energy from you, and I'm willing to pay something in return. So you start reinventing energy, was a concept which was, you were a load. You were a load to me. I, I produce energy and you are a load on the system. And now, and you talked about uh, emotionalization, I now bring a whole sort of community together, which is willing to trade with each other, is willing to in invest in sort of independent energy and green energy, and is willing to settle in a way using a new technology, which is uh, blockchain. We were fascinated, so we invested in the startup which did it. We made clear that this sort of island could actually be connected. And we took this idea and want to sort of replicate it. And that's the idea we have is when there's innovation on redefining what energy means, emotionalizing it, we wanted to be part of it and, and, and really take it to a different scale. And that presumably has potential from a sort of a disruptive perspective into very significant markets on a scalability perspective. 
Absolutely. I mean, you could take it, I mean, you could envisage it to um, to solve a lot of the energy problems we have around the world. Because at the, at the moment, when I, I, call the, I call it the three Ds. I mean, if you think of fundamentally what's happened in energy, it's first, the world is decarbonizing, right? I mean, we have still a billion people which don't have access to energy. If the billion people get connected to the energy the same way you are using energy and I'm using energy, we have a real problem. I mean, global warming is happening, so we have to decarbonize. In order to do this, this will become more decentral and more and more people will start producing their own energy. But in order to balance the system, you need to find new digital capabilities, such as blockchain, to be able to settle it. Uh, Germany is an example. In 1990, there were a thousand power plants in Germany and probably five mathematicians which calculated how much energy you would use, depending if there was a Bundesliga spiel or, I don't know, Premier League or whatever. Today, we have 1.7 million prosumers, people which produce their energy super decentralized, everybody on rooftops, etc. You need to balance the system in a completely different way. So the knowledge we're gaining there is going to be applicable to this complete, what I call the 3Ds, the decarbonization, decentralization, digitalization of the energy world. It's exciting times. And I suppose it comes back to that point of being able to harness the innovators and not always looking internally for those innovators, but partnering with. And you, you made a great point a moment ago, this concept of being a 170-year-old innovator that's had to continuously reevaluate and define what it's going to be. Siemens has had a great track record of building partnerships and alliances and incubating innovation uh, historically, including co-development with customers, something we're seeing as being a, a real theme in the marketplace at the moment. Just expand on that a little bit. Give us a bit of an understanding as to what value that brings to Siemens. We used to be still a very German organization. I mean, Germans are incremental thinkers in terms of developing fantastic technology. But I focused on, on incremental, and the idea of not invented here was very important. I mean, we also wanted to invent everything ourselves. The reality in the world we're living in is, is you need to build more and more this collaboration. So some collaborations are very old. I mean, we, we've been working with universities around the world to link with students, but also development programs for a long time. And we're really focusing this. So um, we have Roland Busch, our CTO, which is really thinking, what is my key technology areas and which with universities do I want to work to think ahead, to think five or 10 years ahead. So that's, that's classical. The, the other one is we've been partnering and partnering has multiple sort of ways. In some cases, we would invest in a partner like Atos. So in terms of we don't have IT capabilities internally anymore, we go to Atos, for example, which we hold a certain percentage of their stocks to be able to do joint development. Um, that's one way, or we would invest in Bentley. So Bentley, I'm not talking the cars, but Bentley, the software developers to, to think 3D development. So first one is research development, if you want, the, the R. Then second one, partnering for development. The other one, which a lot of people do, but we are pushing, is this idea of Next 47. So we were created in 1847, and we said we were going to yeah. put a billion dollars into investing into startups around the world because the R&D budgets of the future are not only the ones which you own, but the one which you have access to. So it's not only about joint research or joint development, it's about joint innovation into startups. Something which comes more and more is customer innovation. Is this, you talked about energy disruption, which is something close to my heart every one of the energy producers or TSOs as we call them, transport service operators or distribution service operators have to reinvent themselves because their market is being completely disrupted. Indeed. So we sit down with them and say, so how could we use, for example, what we see in Brooklyn in your world or how do we see and, and use that? And the last, last one is governments actually. And um, the more we, we're looking at uh, the West side of the world, it's about startups. The, the more you're looking at sort of European, it's more, it's also startups, but it's more companies to companies. And the more you go to Asia, it's a lot of government 
also directions which are impacting it. We would work with SASAC or NDRC in China to say, okay, how do we reinvent? So partnering goes across multiple areas to be successful. And within that kind of corporate partnering, you know, that to your point, there's a sort of a, uh, inherited culture, which is do it yourself, invent it yourself, design it yourself. Acknowledging that there are other corporate entities who may be able to do it better and then still being able to work with them in a way which sees a positive outcome. That's a shift from a kind of a traditional hierarchical model into a much flatter structure of thinking. How do you embed that into your business? The, the main idea of digital is that you start building ecosystem and platforms. I know it's completely overused, but the reality is no one has enough budget, even if you're, I mean, even if you're Siemens of this world or the Googles of this world, to build the complete ecosystem, platform and application on top of it. So you need to define what is the platform I need to build to be able to have scale, and I'll, I'll, I'll come back to this. But also, which relationship do you want with your customer or co-developer or partners? I would come up in my little sort of cellar with an idea. I will come to you, you will look at the idea, and you might buy it. You would test it, you would put it into production, hopefully you will be profitable. The new world is different. The new world is, is there's a problem which we need to solve. We think about, okay, what, what capabilities do I have? Which capabilities do you have? And who else exists to be able to solve that problem? And you would much more quicker do sort of a, a DevOps type in, in which you would develop something, you would trial it, you would see if it works, and then you would sort of build sort of a feedback loop. So the world has become from, and this has to do with speed, from something which is very sort of waterfall-like to something which is much more dynamic. And when it's dynamic, yeah. it's about trial and error, but it's also about co-development and co-testing if some ideas fail or not. It's also about being comfortable with failure. And, and you know, <laughs> typically uh, organizations which come from an engineering lineage don't really like failure or certainly acknowledging it. You know, so getting people to be comfortable with that concept that failure is a good thing because it helps us promote and get better quicker, that's a major change. It's definitely a change because, I mean, everybody talks about accepting failure, but when we experience it, it's painful, right? Yes. I mean, nobody likes the experience of failure. And, and I quite like the idea that actually you learn through failure. My career advice when I, when I have somebody new and he says, well, I, I really failed, it's to say, look, it's going to be good. It's going to be something positive. Now, failure cannot be an aim, right? We need to be very clear that failure is a consequence of trying. So you have a, an idea, you test something, you fail, you learn from it, you try again, you get better. That's the loop you need to create. There's a whole sort of view in the world that we should celebrate failure. I think we should celebrate trialing something and not succeeding and then learning from it. So to your question, that's something big for a German to go from failure to accepting that it's part of a trial and error and then really sort of try to find process in which this is being accepted and learned upon. Does it make sense? Or? It does, yeah. And I suppose just building on that, because presumably there's a piece which is around um, how do you take those people that sit in your organization today on that journey? And then there's another piece which is around how do you supplement that with bringing in alternative types of individual to help to accelerate maybe that learning and that thinking piece. But again, there's a lot of risk associated with how an organization interacts with that. It is, but I'm, I'm one of those, right? I mean, indeed, indeed. <laughs> if you look at a, I've been brought from the outside, I have a completely different background and uh, it feels weird to me, it feels weird to my colleagues, but it's actually enjoyable and it has to happen at every layer of the organization. The, the interesting part is what you might see as a failure, I might see as a success. What you might see as trialing, I might see differently. So the aspect of diversity enables also to to see in failure more of the opportunities which didn't exist before. So my concept of diversity 
is to basically um, be able to look at a problem and at an outcome in a different way. Indeed. And the more you have a different background, the more you say, look, this is actually not bad. It's actually good. And this is something, um, well, I can use it in a completely different environment. And that's where things start to be interesting because most innovations start in failure for a certain application and being applied. I'll give you the example of Werner von Siemens. Werner von Siemens um, invented the point to telegraph, right? I mean, it was one of the first to apply the point to telegraph. He tried, I think, three times to build a line to the US and it failed. The ship sank, the competition cut the line and, and he really, I mean, he put himself on the brink of bankruptcy. And he said, okay, I need to do something else. And then basically with his electrodynamic principle, oh, let's do something with electricity. At the time, there wasn't any electricity. And he went back and says, okay, I can produce electricity, but nobody use it. Instead of having coal ironing, I'm going to put sort of electric ironing. Instead of having these horrible cars, the, one of the first electric cars were built by Mr. Siemens and his wife loved it because it wasn't so dirty, right? Mm-hmm. It wasn't so loud as a, as a horse. So out of failure, these things sort of grew and it was because he had brothers and different people which says, look, this problem is not only to solve the telegraph problem, but it can solve a much bigger problem. There's also a piece, I suspect, within the leadership of your business as well, which allows in this sort of age where community is such a present factor in so many different facets of our lives, not least at work, as we start to see millennials coming into workforce, you know, you have an opinion from day one in an organization and a pretty loud voice thanks to Twitter. <laughs> but there's also great idea generation that comes from really uh, unlikely places and creating a versatile organization that allows you to capture every opportunity to bring that to the fore is born of leadership. And presumably within a context of an organization like Siemens, that that's a key part of how you would drive your business forward. Yeah, you, you, you're bringing up an important concept, tell me if, uh, if I understood it correctly, the idea is, is that there's more and more ideas out there and often we're completely deaf to them, right? I mean, there's this wonderful example of, I think, the Washington Post, which put one of the best uh, violin players in a, in, a, in, a, in a metro and nobody stopped, right? Even if normally you would pay a hundred yes. bucks to actually see him. It's just because it's the wrong time, it's the wrong sort of mechanism. And when you're taking the metro, you're actually not thinking of it. Yes. It's the same for leadership, right? And that's our biggest issues is, is you're being very successful because you're capable of making rapid decision and you've seen sort of situations in a lot of cases. So you can understand, oh, I've seen it and I know what to do. But that's for new ideas, that's not good because new ideas will sound completely alien to you. So it's, it, it is a role of leadership when you build your team. And that's what you were alluding to, to keep people to listen to voices or listen to ideas which don't seem obvious. So you have to believe in the non-obvious and you have to listen to the non-obvious to be able to be creative. Taking the community piece uh, on a stage, and I suppose bring it back into the point you raised earlier in the conversation, this idea of the connectivity with customer, not just in terms of delivering outcomes, as you described with uh, the energy piece, but also the sustainability, the ethical piece of an organization, particularly an organization as large as a Siemens and its impact on the wider world. Just... Talk to us a little bit about what Siemens is doing in that environment. I mean, we, we have a word for it, and I don't know, it's probably a bigger one. We call it business to society. So the idea is that, that we do stakeholder management. The idea is, is you need to bring, of course, the capital results. But when you're 170 years old, you have a role which we play in the different regions. You talked about millennials. So what drives millennials is, is gone from sort of monetary and career classical definitions to actually 
what am I going to be able to impact? What am I exactly. going to be able to change? And the connect to connection to society. To, the connection to society. Am I going to change global warming? I mean, it's a really big thing. Yes. I don't know if anyone of our generation, we were more about, I mean, I think political sort of aspect is it, uh, is the society fair? But there's other aspects which have increased also. It's about how do we make sure that whatever I do as a millennial has an impact to society? And I, I started with it. We at Siemens put a lot of effort to first I mean, the portfolio we have is ethical. I mean, we, we, we start with ourselves, so decarbonization. We, as is the first largest company, decided by 2030 we will be carbon neutral, first carbon neutral conglomerate. And by 2020 we want to halve the, the, the decarbonization. So we put our own organization to think about how do we start, how do we walk, talk, walk the talk, uh, talk. And, 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 and make it actually happen. The second step is when you do this, you actually build products for your customers because they're going to say, hey, how did you do it yourself to be able to do it? You need to find those elements where you make it very, very tangible. And you, you said, everybody, every company wants to do good for society, but you have to say, I'm going to be doing good for society by starting with myself, by building offers with my customers, which actually have that impact, and then delivering on it. And that's the important part is that we are doing this for... Um, decarbonization, we're doing it for um, healthcare, we're doing it for multiple places in which we're trying to understand on how do we actually drive this and make it impactful. And I suppose nowadays as well that the, the customer's expectation from a commercial perspective in terms of what will drive revenue growth as well is that there's a necessity there now to be thinking about that bigger picture, aside from it just being the box that's ticked within a corporate sort of social responsibility. Yeah, that's a, a, a very good um, um, aspect. If, if you look at how the value chains evolve at the moment, it is being looked at. I mean, there's a demand from the customers. There's a demand more and more from the shareholders also to say, whatever you do has to be sustainable. And um, and we put a lot of effort to actually understand what sustainability means. And we actually have a, a whole group which actually is looking at defining what do we need to do to be able to have that uh, that impact. Might it be decommunization? Might it be uh, the product development we have? Or might it be our own value chain? Where do we source products from? What do we do with them? It's exciting times at the moment. And there's, there's all these sort of jargon and buzzwords that are flying around markets, such as AI and quantum. And it means lots of different things to lots of different people. Um, I'd be very interested to get a view on how it's perceived at Siemens and what part it's playing in your thinking. Well, it's interesting because you, you thought about, I mean, these are definitely buzzwords. But if you look at, let's make it very concretely, you talked about lateral thinking and the, the capability of listening. So we have AI, for example, we use AI in our big, big gas turbine, right, to have what we call um, a learning algorithm. So what you would have is, is this big gas turbine would sort of, um, sort of run, you would uh, see what is the air pressure, how, how efficiently does it run, and you would define an ideal state and you would optimize this ideal state every time this thing would run until you basically reduce by 30% the maintenance windows and you talk about sustainability and reduce by 14% the NOx emission. The cool thing about this is this came from washing machines. So we had a team which was looking at fuzzy, when we used, still to, used to have washing machines, we don't have it anymore, but we, we used to have washing machines, we were looking at something called fuzzy logic, where we would look at optimizing the, the lifetime of a washing machine. And then somebody said, well, let's take the washing machine and just make it thousand times bigger and use the same algorithm to be able to do it and build artificial intelligence. That's what, what we're defining. So we, we have, I think, 260 artificial intelligence expert, but we are taking these experts into completely different environments. I'll give you another example. We would take a couple of millennials, which are, I mean, if you're today a data scientist or if you're a, 
somebody in artificial intelligence, you can choose your job. And you said, you know what? You're going to go to a factory which builds locomotives, which has built locomotives for the last hundred years. And you're going to be sitting together with an engineer which knows how to build a locomotive and runs a locomotive. We call them, uh, we used to call them DAC, we call them MAC, now Mindset Application Centers. And we would co-locate a 20-something-year-old with a 40, 50-year-old and says, make trains better. And they did. I mean, they basically looked at it and said, look, the biggest issue, why are trains too late, is because the doors don't open and close. So we put algorithm, artificial intelligence algorithm, to read this, to be able to do it. So what I said is beyond the buzzword is we're trying to see how across our product lines can we do it and how can we bring it by bringing completely different people together and work on it. So it's bringing, I suppose, in some ways, the, the conceptualization of what the potential of an AI-based tool could be, but actually giving somebody the reality of actually then putting it to work and fixing something. Absolutely. And instead of saying, look, I mean, build the best Go um, playing mechanism or chess playing, try to make a gas turbine 5% more efficient because you're going to save the world doing it. Or you're going to make the train run better, which is going to be good for people when you, when you wait next time. Make it very concrete. Um, you talked about quantum. Uh, I, told, uh, I talked to you as... Uh, the revolutions I saw was the revolution of the internet, which was, I don't know, connecting 400 million or a billion computers. It went then on to the mobile internet, which was co connecting, I don't know, 4 billion handsets. We now went into cloud computing and, and we're now going to this internet of things, which is a big buzzword. This is happening in energy. At the moment, we're going from 1,000 power plants to 1.7 million power producers. We will go to billions of people will produce their on energy and start trading. If you mathematically look at this problem and connect it, you cannot solve it. You will, like, like, yeah. like Bitcoin, you will need the energy of Ireland or Nigeria to solve that problem. Yeah. And we said, look, when, if you look at quantum computing, that's exactly the problem it looks. It's, it's a hyper-complex problem which you can actually shortcut by using um, quantum computing technology. So that's what we're thinking of in terms of if you want to have an impact, don't create a society which generates very green energy, but then consumes it just to administer it itself. So yeah. lose, look at new technology to look at that. And within the, all of the things that we've touched upon, at the heart of all of it sits people. Yes. And, and that kind of boils down to your ability to uh, attract them, to retain them, to challenge them, and to bring them into this kind of digital transformation journey that you're running through. How does Siemens go about that? What do they need to do to keep at the fore of that? Yeah, I mean, uh, as I said, there's, there's, there's multiple things which we need to look at. The, the first one is when you have an organization like Siemens, which has reinvented itself, it knows it needs to reinvent itself, especially when it's seen that certain things fail in a big time, like the telecom environment. So you need a ground which is open. Some, an organization which is arrogant and thinking they are the best in the world, it's very difficult to be innovative. So that's the first thing. So you need a, a humble organization. The second thing you need to do is, is you need to create environments where both existing and new knowledge is being valued. When you are 50-year-old locomotive engineers, you don't think about digitalization. When you put them in the same room with a 25-year-old female computer scientist and they solve a problem he's been looking at for the last 20 years, you create a relationship and both are challenged. The classical locomotive engineer thinks, oh my God, I never thought of this. And the data scientist said, oh my God, I can use it onto something real. So create environments, create organization, create sort of DNA exchange places where you actually drive this forward. And the last one is, is you sometimes need to inject DNA. So we had to acquire for 10 billion software companies to be able to add this capability of having a hardware and a software business. Not only a software business, but combining the two. And the success of Siemens in 
for example, the automation space. We're the number one automation space. is because we're capable of doing a virtual simulation of a product, electrical and mechanical. We're capable of simulating, I don't know, crash test and anything. We take the simulation, put it into a production process, and then automatically download it into our hardware so the robots would start exactly configuring it. Meaning that for Adidas, for example, we're capable of building just the shoe for you. So we can simulate the shoe and then optimize it straight into the production lines. And these are the things which you need to do. And in order to change it, you need to start linking people, you need to start linking technologies, you need to start linking areas which didn't used to fit together. That's what we do at Siemens, but you need to have an organization which is humble enough to understand that this is what we want to do. Now, your career has been very diverse, both in terms of geography and what you've been asked to do, and, and indeed the challenges that you've been placed in front of you. There will have been many lessons throughout your career and how best to incubate and support innovation. But if I could challenge you to just pull out one, what would that be? Look for the non-obvious and have patience, which is counterintuitive. I mean, the first one is not, but the second one is counterintuitive. I'll give you a concrete example. I was hired, I was a mechanical engineer by training. I studied at UCL. I spent one and a half years with handicapped children after this, so out of personal reasons. And I was hired to build the first mobile internet platform at Siemens. So I had no capability ever to do it. So I was full of energy and I had to, to bring it up. What I learned is I said, I, I looked at a problem from a technical point of view and, and, and said, I believe in mobile internet. And I spent, I don't know if you remember WAP, I, I was one of the people redefining it. It was a huge failure, right? I spent the first four years of my career telling everybody that it had to be logical that this innovation mobile internet will come because it existed in the fixed line and it would also exist in the internet. It's a disaster every year. Every year promised huge growth which never came. And I always thought it's because it's technically feasible that it will happen. What actually happened was, of course, everybody knows, the iPhone. The iPhone came and everything I was developing well, was whatever, a couple of hundred people which were at the beginning of this industry and it wasn't as attractive at the time now had sense. And what happened is that this non-obvious that actually you had to bring a PC with a completely different business model was not in the way we were looking at it as engineers. So this non-obvious happened and we had the right idea that this was the right technology, but we had to find the right timing in what had happened. So innovation never comes when you predict it. Innovation is never an obvious consequence of what you do. And so outside trigger mechanism need to happen, but you have to have the patience and you need to be ready when it actually hits. I mean, blockchain and Bitcoin has been around for a while before they accelerated. The internet has been around for a while. So my view is, is often people give up the right ideas too early. And often people think it's because the way they imagine the future to be has to come exactly that way. And they, they're not as, you talked about being open. I'm not open that something else could have happened to sort of disrupt it. So my advice and my humility on it is, is some ideas just stick with them. And some ideas, if somebody comes up with a crazy idea, it might not be as crazy as, as, as it sounds. Great advice. <laughs> Cedric, uh, it's been great to talk to you. Fascinating discussion. Thank you very much for your time. Absolutely. Thank you, Jamie. Thanks for listening to the Hydrogen Struggles Leadership Podcast. To make sure you don't miss more future shaping ideas and conversations, please subscribe to our channel on the podcast app. And if you're listening via LinkedIn, Twitter, or YouTube, why not share this with your connections? Until next time. <laughs>